0: Uh, book of Matthew and the 24th chapter. We're just going to go over uh, a few verses today. We have basically, uh, for those who are new, uh, we go book by book through the Bible, and, uh, uh, or through books of the Bible, I should say. We're in Matthew and chapters 24 to 25. We're in kind of a series of six sermons. So this is the uh, third, I believe, and we'll have a, um, a few more. And then we'll be taking a pause from Matthew. Chapter twenty-four, verses twenty—I'm sorry, thirty-two to thirty-five. This is what God's word says. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. This is God's Word. Now, I'm going to bounce off these verses a little bit. There's obviously not a lot there, but we've gone through a lot the last couple weeks in terms of all these things that have been happening. Uh, As Jesus declares uh, two things, really, one is the question we've been dealing with is what is going to signal the end of Uh, Judaism, end of the Old Covenant, end of the temple, he says is going to be torn down. When's that going to happen? And then the second part, uh, which we will uh, see begins in, I believe, verse 36, is when is the end of the age? Or namely, when is Jesus going to return and end the whole world and call it quits or really call it uh, restart? And I'm using these two or three verses here kind of as to talk about this in-between time that we actually find ourselves in. Now, uh, we saw back in Matthew 23 when Jesus was talking to Jewish religious leaders and really condemning them uh, in a very uh, direct judgment. In verse 26 of chapter 23, He said something similar to what we see in verse 34 here, which was, these things shall come upon this generation. And... Now we have seen, as chapter 24 has gone through, as Jesus described the different signs leading up to the destruction of the temple, in verse 34 He says the same thing. This generation is not going to pass away until all these things take place. And so the generation, these 30-40 to years, 50 years chunk of time around Jesus' life The generation, the people that were alive during Jesus' life, death, and resurrection had an experience unlike any other generation before or after it. This generation experienced the coming of the Messiah that had been uh, prophesied really since Genesis chapter 3, but constantly throughout the history of the Jewish people. This generation um, saw, if you will, the death of that king and the resurrection of that king. And the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 signaled the what we'll call the public inauguration of Jesus' kingship of His kingdom, first for the Jew, then also for the Gentile. Now, we divided Matthew into five books. We've gone through four. Within the fourth, and the fourth book is called The Rejection of the King. You see a book back there, and it has some notes and stuff in it, It's called The Rejection of the King. And the destruction of the temple, which we have been talking about the last couple weeks in terms of just history and how it happened around A.D. 70, and all the things that Jesus is prophesying about took place, the destruction of the temple was God's judgment for them rejecting the king. And Jesus said that this all had to occur. Don't be alarmed. I'm telling you this beforehand. This all has to take place. They have to reject the king formally, completely, and we're going to judge them accordingly before you see the return of the king. Now when the first Christian martyr, if you read the book of Acts, you'll get to Acts chapter 7, you'll read a guy about named Stephen. Stephen is the first Christian martyr in the early church. And he um, is challenged by some Jews and, and he proceeds to preach a very awesome sermon about really the story of God from the beginning to Jesus and basically says, this Jesus is the one that you've been waiting for. This Jesus is the one you rejected. This Jesus is the one who's going to judge you. And they're like, I don't think so. And they lift up stones to stone Him. And as they're stoning Him, these are Stephen's words in the book of Acts chapter 7. He says, Behold, saying this out loud, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. This is obviously after Jesus' death, after His resurrection, after His ascension, having spent much time with His disciples before going to be... With the Father in heaven. And now he says, I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In other words, even though King Jesus was not literally on earth, he was and is sitting on his throne. And our generation, as does every generation, exists um, in a place between two worlds, we'll call it. In this place, you probably often hear people speak about Jesus being king. Oh, Jesus on His throne. Jesus is king. Jesus is ruling. And if we ever stop to go, well, what does that really mean? What is this in-between time? And that's why I'm using these three verses here. Like, signs, temples destroyed. This generation had this incredible experience. And then Jesus is going to start talking about a second coming. Like, where do we exist right now? Because Jesus has not returned and yet we see that we've had judgment and condemnation on the Old Covenant, what does it mean that Jesus is King? So I want to go through Matthew a little bit and walk through this with you and just kind of bring to light how Jesus talked about the Kingdom. Jesus spoke often about the Kingdom, and it might surprise you how often He spoke about it. Matthew portrays the Kingdom of Heaven as as having arrived with Jesus' birth when you have wise men from the east, pagan wise men, who come to worship really toddler Jesus. The King. The King who had been born. The King whom they had read the signs in the sky about. The King who they had heard of. Then the first words that Jesus declares as an adult, and He begins His ministry at 30-ish, In Matthew 4.17, the first words are, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. According to chapter 4, as you read further, it says that Jesus' ministry to this generation that He was in included, quote, in verse 23, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. Again, this idea of kingdom. Jesus, as you read into His ministry, which extends really up towards what we have been reading here, you see that Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5 that the poor in spirit would inherit the kingdom of heaven. That those in the kingdom of heaven would be persecuted. Not those out in heaven. Those in the kingdom of heaven would be persecuted. He taught that one's righteousness had to exceed the Pharisees in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus commanded the crowds to first seek the kingdom. And He cast out demons by the power of the kingdom. And then He shared what can only be called the secrets of the kingdom with His disciples, including the truth that one had to become like a child to enter the kingdom. And He spoke in many parables about what the kingdom of heaven is like. If you read through His parables... Most often, at least in the book of Matthew, they start off with the kingdom of heaven can be compared to, or the kingdom of heaven is like. And finally, as we see Matthew's gospel conclude here, we hear Jesus prophesize about the final end and consummation of the kingdom, telling his disciples that he would not feast with them, as we will see later, until they were in his father's kingdom together. So you go, what is the kingdom? It seems pretty important. Jesus talks about it all the time. For my purposes, and I think biblically, we can describe the kingdom as synonymous with the rule of God. With the lordship of God. And if you remind yourself of the story of God, which is really important to constantly do as you're getting some context for what Jesus is saying. In Genesis 1 and 2, where we have this World created as a very good place. A wonderful place. And this place flourished under the rule of God. And it flourished in the presence of God to exercise that rule face-to-face, if you will. And men and women had a fulfilling relationship with God and they had a fulfilling relationship with others. They had a fulfilling even understanding of themselves, of the self, if you will, And they had a fulfilling relationship with the world. They enjoyed work. They loved to pet the animals. Everything was great. But then men rejected God. And in rejecting God, they rejected His rule. They disobeyed God's Word. They rebelled. And side note, if you're not sure, that's what's wrong with the world. Okay? It's not because of lack of education. It's not because of lack of social problems. It's because men are in rebellion against God. That is the problem. And it began a long time ago. Sin entered the world, and what happened was it brought destruction and death and disintegration to all those relationships. Relationship with God, relationship with others, relationship with self, and who am I? We're seeing that played out in the most strangest way right now and relationship with the world. Everything broke down. But by grace and and time we see God provide His people a means through which they could cover that sin temporarily and continue in relationship with God. And in many ways, as we have talked about, the people of God and particularly the temple was to represent God's presence and rule here on earth in a tangible way. Those are the people of God. The temple is where they worshipped and mediated that relationship with God. So you'd see, like, okay, if the kingdom of God can't be seen anywhere else, it can be seen there in the people of God. And the purpose of God's rule re-entering, if you will, into the world is to restore and heal all the relationships that sin broke, beginning with the relationship with God and the relationship with others and self and the world. And so prophet after prophet said, hey, this is all temporary. God is going to come. The king is going to return, if you will. There will be a king. There will be a Messiah. And that's why Matthew is writing to Jews. Here's the guy you've been waiting for. The guy that is going to bring God's rule back into the world through these people. In Luke 17, when Jesus is talking to some Pharisees, He teaches this. In verse 20 it says, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. you are going to ask like, the king was going to come and wipe out Rome or whoever the enemy was at the time. He says, no, the king's not going to come in a way that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is. Or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Jesus was speaking of himself. Jesus was the embodiment of the kingdom on earth, but it was still hidden in a sense. And Jesus constantly um, talked about the kingdom and revealed the kingdom by what He said. The kingdom is going to be like this. The kingdom is like this. But then you'd also see the effects of the kingdom of God embodied by Jesus on creation, on people. See, Jesus didn't use His miracles. All the miracles that Jesus did, whether it be feeding the 5,000 or healing the blind or causing the lame to walk, what we see is, this is not Jesus just going, look, let me show you how awesome I am. Okay? He was awesome, but that's not why he's doing it. What you see is that Jesus is giving a, a, the people a foretaste of salvation and really what the restoration of all creation would look like. Like when Jesus did miracles, he wasn't doing something crazy outside of the natural order. He was restoring what was supposed to be the natural order. He was making things right, as would be under the kingdom. And only the kingdom could do that. But Jesus always talked about how the kingdom was near, how the kingdom was at hand, how the kingdom was coming, almost as if there was something that had to happen in order for the kingdom to actually be established. And we know, or should know, that that something that Jesus knew had to happen was that the king had to die. The king had to atone for sins. The king had to make a way to bring the people back in. And so through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, he establishes, or should say reestablishes, the rule of God. Jesus didn't just win a future kingdom for us to be a part of and one day escape to. Jesus conquered, right now, sin, Satan, and death And He is ruling right now. One of my favorite verses that speaks about this is Colossians chapter 2. And it says this, "...and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses or sins by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands." This He set aside where? Nailing to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So the enemies of God, sin, Satan, death, the rulers of the spiritual world, if you will, have been conquered. Jesus has triumphed over them. Jesus has brought in God's rule into the world, and He is beginning to restore, if you will, creation. He's beginning to restore, first, the relationship with God, then relationship with others, then relationship with the self and the world. And creation. Now, when I say creation, I'm not talking about the animals or the trees, though those certainly are included. I'm talking about us. There's only two things in the world, right, in existence. The Creator and creation. And we're not this. We are creation. And so we are a people who are restored and being restored and creation, whether it be marriages, whether it be the use of money, whether it be governments, whether it be anything in our personal lives and families, we are healed and restored to the extent that we come under the authority and rule of God. That is what went wrong in the beginning. And that is what is continuing to go wrong now. When things go astray, it's because they're not under the lordship of Jesus. They're not following Jesus. We enter the kingdom not because we're special, but because we're weak and broken and God reveals that to us and we see our need. And by grace through faith, in the person and work of Jesus, we enter into the kingdom of God. And when you put your faith in Christ, you become a citizen of God's kingdom now. Not in the future, though that will be fully realized more in the future. You are citizens now. Let me prove it to you. And I think that most of us are very dismissive of this concept. Most of us look at Christianity and think like a backpack of morality that we put on when it's convenient and we take off and not realize that you're a citizen of a different kingdom now. You are in a kingdom that's not yours, governed by a kingdom that is. Here's what the Bible says about this. And notice that these are um, indicative statements. They're not, hey, do this to be in the kingdom. He's like, "This this is the way it is. This is who you are. Colossians 1 says He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. He has. Or again, Peter writes in 1 Peter two nine, you are not, hey, you ought be. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, That you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You are a holy nation. You are a chosen people. You are special. John states it in the book of Revelation, which is ever so popular and confusing. Chapter 1 says this in verse 6 To him who loves and has freed us, has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us. A kingdom. Priests to His Godfather, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. He has made us a kingdom. We are a holy nation. We have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The destruction of the temple that we've read about Matthew confirms that the kingdom has arrived in that generation for our generation. We will not simply become citizens of kingdom of God's kingdom one day through faith we are citizens of God's kingdom now and that is why the Bible often describes us as exiles, as sojourners, as ambassadors, living in a foreign place, living in a kingdom but governed by a different one. but let's be Totally honest, doesn't often look like the kingdom of God. And we're left in this in between state, to like, wait, okay, so we're in the kingdom now, but it doesn't look like it in the world. And the truth is, you're right. Very observant of you. We do experience the kingdom now, but there's also a, a not yetness about it. It is both now and, and it's not yet. It is both now and experience, and yet it's not fully realized. And Christians get really messed up and you can begin to see why churches do the thing they do, why Christians do the thing they do, because they focus too much on the now or too much on the not yet and not both. For those, many Christians wrongly make it about too now. They make the kingdom too present and too natural. What I mean is they fail to to recognize the spiritual nature of God's kingdom and they end up devoting themselves to all kinds of social programs and cultural engagement because they believe they're going to change the world. They're going to usher in a new Christendom if you will. And so they devote themselves to that. In many ways they are very optimistic believing that their engagement in the culture and the closeness to it is what's going to totally affect the world and change it. But then you got the people who focus on the too much on the not yet. And here the kingdom of God is if one is too present and too natural, this one is too future and too spiritualized. Failing to recognize their active missional responsibility, ignoring passages that call them ambassadors and go and love the world. They hide away and study their Bibles and often ignore the real practical needs of those around them because they're very pessimistic about the world. All the kingdoms come, we just need to get away from here. We'll be in the kingdom someday. And so you go you have these two extremes, where I truly believe we're supposed to live in the tension of a kingdom that is now that we are called this kingdom and yet uh, not yet. And in asking, okay, how are we supposed to live like that, I don't mean to ask what we in our own power can do. Because the answer to that is nothing. But the beauty of it is that Christ gives us the presence of his kingdom in our hearts you may or may not know that after his resurrection Jesus spent about 40 days teaching his disciples at the end of the forty days Jesus brought his disciples together on the same amount of olives that he's teaching at right here now I don't know what he taught him in forty days I'm sure they asked all kinds of questions they had the resurrected Jesus with them, so you know have been you know question and answer time. I'm sure. What's it like to be dead? You know all these things. But after all that time, here's what his disciples asked. I mean, remember what Jesus had preached, what he had talked about constantly, what he had commanded to do. Right? He talked about the kingdom, seek the kingdom, repent, the kingdom's at hand. And then suddenly the kingdom is is there. And what do they say? The very beginning of Acts, I believe it might be verse 6. Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? We're still thinking about it, right? Is it okay? Are you going to set everything right? Because as I said, it's not all right yet. Are you going to set everything right now? Because it's awesome that you got resurrected. Clearly, you got the power. But, and he's like, See ya. And He ascends to heaven. The disciples expected that Jesus would fully restore His kingdom, which would make sense, really. You're with the resurrected Jesus. You're like, okay, here we go. But instead He goes, no, don't think about that. Don't think about when that's going to happen. Don't worry about that. The Father knows that. But I want you to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. Did you know at one point in His ministry, Jesus had said this. I believe it's in the Gospel of John. Around 14. He said, did you know that it's to your advantage that I go away, guys? You don't want me to stay. they are like, what? It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send Him to you. Who's this helper? And Who he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. Before Christ, being in the kingdom of God required that really you became part of the nation of Israel. And you lived according uh, to the law of God. But with the nation of Israel gone and the temple gone, There's no way to be in the presence of God. That was the means by which God had given. This is how you can experience my presence. But that's where Jesus comes in. Jesus made a way. And before He died, He spoke to a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And He told him that in order to even see the Kingdom of God, In order to even see the kingdom of God, you had to be born again by the Spirit. When we enter the kingdom of God through faith in the personal work of Jesus Christ, we enter and receive the Holy Spirit. We receive the presence of God in us. The kingdom of God in us. The Spirit who cries out, the Spirit who cries out Galatians 3, Abba, Father confirming our adoption as sons and heirs of the kingdom. The same presence of God that we see at the very end of Exodus coming dwelling in the temple now dwells in our hearts. That same level of power, that same level of peace, that same level of joy by the Spirit. By the Spirit, we are restored in a very real sense to God's kingdom but we also by his spirit begin to work for the restoration of the kingdom that we live in and through the spirit we actually perceive things differently and experience things differently and advance the kingdom of god so i want to just talk about three ways we do that three ways that we actually live as kingdom citizens And it's all by His Spirit. It's not standing by the Spirit. It's not running from the Spirit. It's walking in the Spirit. And by His Spirit, I believe we are experiencing and should experience and can experience the kingdom personally. What does that even mean? It means that the alternative to living under the lordship of Jesus in His kingdom is living under the lordship of an idol in the world's kingdom. And that's what most people do. Most people in the world are not believers. We know this, I hope. I recognize there are not believers here as well. The difference between those two is not that there is lordship running your life, it's who is the Lord running and ruling your life. You are either finding meaning hope and joy in an idol as you are ruled by it, believing it will give you all those things, or you are submitted to Jesus. Not perfectly, not all the time, but in a way that is meaningful and substantive. Essentially, when you reject God's rule, you make something more important than Jesus to your happiness. That could be something Like a successful career or a happy family. It doesn't have to be bad things. But those things become more important than Jesus. When you live out your citizenship and your identity, Jesus becomes supremely more important than anything or any God you might have. That's what it means to live under the rule of of Jesus and as you do this the rule of Jesus begins to change your perspective on everything with Jesus as king you even begin to see how the world is working out with actual a little optimism a little hope as if I know things are looking bad but Jesus wins Jesus is ruling Jesus is reigning what does that mean it means simply this number one I don't have to live in fear of death because Jesus reigns. I can actually fight sin because Jesus reigns. I can actually suffer well because Jesus reigns. I can live differently, as unpopular or uncomfortable as it might be, because Jesus reigns. I am in this kingdom, but I am governed by another by the true kingdom of my citizenship. We're not trying to escape a world. We're not trying to like, I can't wait for heaven to come here so I can get away. We are living here confidently. We're living here optimistically even as things grow darker because we trust that Jesus is ruling. And nothing's outside of His rule. How do I know that? I saw on the cross. He conquered sin and Satan and death. And I can't think of any other enemies there are. And the deeper we believe that, the more the kingdom begins to renovate, renovate our heart character. It begins to transform us into looking like Jesus, into, into His goodness and His peace and His joy. That's just a personal level of the kingdom. Romans 14.17, I don't know if you've read this verse, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking but of what? Of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. As kingdom citizens, you know what we should be? That! By Spirit, righteous people. By His Spirit, peaceful people. When the world freaks out, we don't. When the world gets dark, Jesus is ruling, it's not that we don't care, but we don't lose hope. And we should be characterized by people of Joy. Christians sometimes are the most sad-sack, sad people I've ever met. And we're the ones that have the truth. We're the ones that have the identity. We're the ones that have the king reigning. Like, what is there to be sad about? We should be joyful. By His Spirit, we experience the kingdom personally. But by His Spirit, we also evidence the kingdom socially. What does that mean? It means what is happening in our heart overflows into the world. Or ought to. We don't serve others so that God will love us. The love of God produces a love for others. The love of God produces a love for others. If your theology, or if your biblical position or understanding the Gospel does not produce a love for others, I don't know what you're believing, but it's not the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus as King means that God's ruling power is present and ready to heal and really reweave what is an unraveled fabric of creation. God, let's just understand, and I have said this at funerals, God did not design the world to experience death, disease, and destruction. And Jesus' miracles... As I said, the healing of the blind and the lame and the sick and even raising the dead were not a violation of the natural order as much as they were a restoration of it. The presence of the kingdom of God, like boom, that's, so, that's how it's supposed to be. Bartimaeus, you're blind? That's how you're supposed to be. Right? That's what Jesus was doing. You have no food? Boop. We got food now. Lots of it. And we may not have the miraculous power, like whether or not healing gifts exist, I'm not going to have that debate, though I can. It's not about us walking around and making sure we feed the 5,000. It is to say that our deeds, as we serve the poor, as we love the broken, as we visit the prisoner, as we care for the unborn and the unwanted, In doing that, we give foretastes of what a fully restored creation looks like. Do you realize that's what we're doing? We don't have the miraculous power, but we do have the presence of God and the kingdom of God flowing out of us as we restore and see restoration. And people go, why are you doing this? So we'll like you? No, this is what the world's supposed to look like. We're supposed to love one another. We're supposed to care for one another. There isn't supposed to be poverty, so we're going to go feed those who are in need. We're going to go build homes for the homeless because that's what it's supposed to be. We're giving them a picture of the full restoration that will happen when the fullness of His kingdom comes at His second coming. More than service to others, we believe it is important and glorifying and loving to penetrate what is the public domain of this world, politically, socially, economically, materially, and in every other way to bring in kingdom values. We believe that's loving. Now again, if you focus too much on the now, you forget the gospel, you often forget biblical authority, and you only are devoted to social programs. But when you talk about a now and not yet, and talk about bringing restoration and healing to the world, we have the opportunity to do that. But lastly, and perhaps more surprisingly, by his spirit we experience the kingdom personally, and by his spirit we evidence it socially, but by his spirit we actually advance the kingdom communally. What does that mean? Um, Our experience of the kingdom was never designed to be an individual one. It was designed to be a communal one. In fact, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to obey the 50-plus commands of one another by yourself. Love one another. That's going to be tough. Serve one another. Well, unless you're in a room of mirrors, it's going to be very difficult. The Bible constantly calls us a family, a household, a body, a kingdom together. No one is a kingdom of one person. When we speak of Jesus as king, I think we're very often quick to move to those social things. Like, he's king, let's move. Let's do something. And usually it's very personal. I'm going to do this. It's not often we think about communal work together. I'm not even talking about work in the traditional sense. The kingdom is not purely natural. It's spiritual. I believe, and I talked at length with a Brethren in Christ about this this week, we need to begin to view, and I say begin because I don't think we do that well we need to view this gathering as special. This is a sacred time together. That is the kingdom of God, if you will, is gathering. And it is gathered elsewhere as well. But this is a unique experience where God's people gather to worship. And the King is present with us as He receives our worship. We're not simply getting together to hang out. We're not even getting together as we do next week just to serve. When we gather, particularly on the Lord's Day, the King is present with us and there's a sacredness here. And we are changed. And we're reminded of our change. I believe that our commitment to gather, because let's be honest, many of us, and I would include myself until I became a pastor, going to church on Sunday is optional. It's not an experience we always look forward to, though I hope it becomes that. And I think that's because we don't view it properly. We view it just as a gathering, sing some songs, hear some instruction, move on, as opposed to an a time when we are in very real way experiencing the presence of God in a way we can't elsewhere. <clears throat> I believe our commitment to worship is one of the most powerful means of perceiving, experiencing, and advancing the kingdom. And you go, okay, perceiving, I get that. Experiencing, I get that. Advancing, we advance the kingdom by gathering on a Sunday and worshiping the king? You go, ah, that seems weird it's unlikely you'd consider gathering advancing but tell me if you would feel different were you in Syria or Iran or China where brothers and sisters are killed and beaten for their faith and they gather secretly would you feel as if you were advancing the kingdom then would you feel as if you were doing something sacred and special then Our culture has really screwed us up in terms of our view of what this is. And there's a sacredness here. There's a specialness here. And there may come a time in our country where we will have to gather in secret or privately or under possible warning of arrest. Will we do that? And will we see that then as advancing the kingdom? As declaring Jesus is King, Jesus is Lord, and we gather to worship Him as King and as Lord, regardless of what it means us. When the church simply functions as God's gathered kingdom, as we gather to worship, as we gather to love, as we gather to be equipped, as we gather to be sent and encouraged in our sending, I believe we advance the kingdom until His return. I believe this is why Hebrews 10 is reminds us to let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For He who promised is faithful and let us consider how to stir one another toward love and good works, not neglecting meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Our gathering is a means by which I believe we advance the kingdom. Well, in conclusion, and I really mean it, the destruction of the temple was, as I said, Jesus' coronation ceremony in many ways. The former way of God was gone. The way of relationship with God was gone, but it did not end. It just had changed. For that generation, it was over, but it was opened up for all future generations, including our generation, through Christ. Everything the temple had there now exists by spirit with us. And I'm not sure you've ever read the last verse, last two verses of the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the story of the church from the beginning in Jerusalem when the Holy Spirit was received, and it unfolding as they go from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, which would be in Rome. The end of the book of Acts ends in Rome. And Paul. In writing some of his last words, he would uh, be martyred, not at that time, but soon in Rome. Beheaded under Nero, I believe. Here's what he wrote of his um, efforts as the church continued on. In speaking about Paul, writes, uh, Luke writes this, He lived two whole years at his own expense. This is Paul. And he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God. You would expect him to say proclaiming the Gospel. That you would expect. But it says Paul devoted himself when he was in Rome to proclaiming the Kingdom of God. The idea of the Kingdom now, ushered in by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and the Kingdom not yet coming when He returns to fully restore us. He committed himself to proclaiming the Kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. I pray that's our commitment. That Jesus has come and the work of the cross has been accomplished and God's kingdom has touched down to earth and is here to stay. The kingdom is here and it's not going anywhere. I think all too often I've taken a very historical view of, of what has happened up to this point. And oftentimes, with many of the different positions that take a future view, what I find is that the futurists are so caught up in thinking about the future and really escaping earth and getting to heaven. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that God's intent is to bring heaven and earth together. Not to bring us out and get away from it. It's to restore heaven. It is just as the temple was replaced with a greater temple, namely our hearts where the Spirit of God dwells, so the heavens, as we see in verse 35, they will pass away, but they won't just go away and there will be nothing. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. A new earth. We're not going to be floating around with harps and clouds with Jesus. Jesus. We're going to be living in a fully restored world as God intended. Where we fully realize everything He intends. And so until that day, I pray we'll be a church who call people to repent and believe in Jesus and His kingdom. I pray that we will all come under Jesus and His Lordship. We will live under His Lordship because just standing under it is different than living. And we will work under His Lordship with a view of a future restoration under His Lordship. Living now and not yet. Not too optimistic, not too pessimistic, but right in line with how Jesus called us to live. And we will celebrate communion this morning reminding us of just that fact. That the kingdom has been established through this. And this is for believers. This is for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Those who trust in His person, who He was and what He did for us. This is the kingdom is here. It has been established in a very tangible and, yes, mysterious way. We participate in that. This is a celebration of our citizenry. And it's even a reminder to God, remember, we're your kids. But it's also a reminder, because this is temporal, of Jesus saying, next time I take this with you will be when we're in heaven together, fully restored. So we have a new life now. We have an eternal life coming. We must remember them both. Let's pray. Father, Your Word is rich. I thank You for all that You did that we could not do. Lord, we are a people who rebelled. We are a people who rejected Your Lordship. And neither tried to live as our own lords or sought other lords not named Jesus forgive us for that also forgive us father for believing that the kingdom is something only future a place for us to escape and while we're here father we wrongly feel justified in hiding away from the world and not revealing that kingdom, and not living that kingdom, and really even advancing that kingdom. And forgive those of us, Father, who think the kingdom is too much now. Who believe that we need to devote ourselves to bringing the kingdom in. Not believing and understanding that this world is never going to fully be restored until You return. Jesus, we pray You return quickly. And until that time, I ask that You will change us individually. And You will search our hearts by Your Spirit to show us what aspects of our lives are not under Your Lordship. And take the Gospel deeper into our hearts. And You will birth in us a love for the world that through hearts that are full of love, we will love. But more than anything, Lord, I pray You will change all of our dispositions towards the gathering of Your people here. I've seen the King present here. Seeing you present with us and as this work right here, our worship as a means to advance and proclaim your kingdom now and future. It's in the name of Jesus, our King, we pray. Amen.